be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 2, so let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn there. 2 Samuel chapter 2. As we have been seeing, David does not come to the throne by his own doing. It's true, God chose him for the throne. And David has known that he was going to receive the throne as king, but he's unwilling to take it by force. He is not a bloodthirsty crown seeker. He is a humble servant of God, happy to follow God in his way and according to his timing. And now, we've seen at the end of 1 Samuel that Saul has fallen off the scene through his death. And so it seems like it, it's time for David to be king. But the people are not so quick to make him king. And so here in 2 Samuel 2, we see that David seeks God's help and God sends him to Hebron, the capital of Judah, and the people will anoint him there, as we'll see in the text And in the meantime, there's another challenge that's starting to rise up in the northern kingdom where they are working to establish or really continue the line of Saul. They don't want to see Saul's dynasty end, so they want to see it continued with his family. And so one of Saul's commanders, or his military commander, is going to appoint Saul's son, Ishbosheth, king, and... um, He's only going to be king for two years. Some point in the near future, after David is established as king of Judah, he's going to take over as king of all of Israel, both Judah and Israel, and then be their king for 33 years and really be their best king um, until the coming kingdom that we are looking forward to when Jesus comes. So let me read our text for us, beginning in verse 1 of 2 Samuel Chapter 2. This is the Word of God. Then it came about afterwards that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. So David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, and David brought up his men who were with him, each with his household, and they lived in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came, and there anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, It was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed to the Lord, because you have shown this kindness to Saul your Lord and have buried him. Now may the Lord show loving kindness and truth to you, and I also will show this goodness to you, because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, or Ephraim, and over Benjamin, even over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he was king for two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. The time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. In order to see what God is doing, we need to answer, I think, three questions 
that I think we should ask of the text. And then as we see these answers, we'll see and know what, that, that really that God is behind it all. And at the end of each section, I think we have some natural breaks because each time it mentions that David is king over Judah. So here's the first section where we have some information of what's going on and then David is king over Judah. Verses 1 through 4. And here's the first question that I think would be helpful for us to answer from the text. How will David's kingdom be established? Verses 1 through 4. How will David's king be established? We've really been wondering that. We know the end of the story, but but we've been wondering that as we read through 1 Samuel. He was anointed as king way back in 1 Samuel 16. And so how is it that David is going to be established as the king? From the time of 1 Samuel 16 through 2 Samuel 2, we've been wondering. We've been seeing all these setbacks that David's had, well, at least in terms of his rise to the throne. It seems like he's never going to get there. At the beginning of chapter 2, David is in the city of Ziklag. You remember that city that's the Philistine-occupied and owned city that they had actually given over to David as a token of their appreciation for him fighting battles on their behalf or with them, at least they thought. And so that's where he's at, at at the beginning of chapter 2. In chapter 1, we saw him learn of Saul's death and then mourn his loss with this, this lament psalm. Here in chapter 2, David needs to know what the Lord is doing. And we might think from a human perspective, why does David really need to ask? I mean, David already had all the information he needed, right? He, he was well-liked by his own people. These people who had been traveling with him and, him and hiding with him. He was good at gathering a military battalion. He was already assured by God and by uh, Samuel that he would be the king. And so the temptation for David could have been to just establish his, his throne on his own or do it through a human-appointed means. But that's not what David does. Notice what he does in verse 1. It came about afterwards that Saul's dead and they mourned his loss, that David inquired of the Lord. So what's David doing here? He has all the information seemingly from a human perspective to do what he knows is going to happen, and yet he still does what? He seeks God. Instead of presuming upon God's will, instead of forcing his way to the throne, or just assuming that it's going to be his, he knows God has promised it to him, and yet he still seeks God's will. And we see that in the questions that he asks. He asks two questions. First, in verse 1, Shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And then, when the Lord said, Go up, David said, Where shall I go up? So, so should I do this? God says, yes, do it. Well, where exactly? And God tells him to go to Hebron. Now, what's happening here behind the scenes is that God is all, has already laid the groundwork for David to establish his throne in Judah. Or in Judah, yes. In Hebron specifically, but in Judah. Specifically in this southern city, the southern region of Israel. Remember, David was from that region. 1 Samuel 17 tells us that he was from Bethlehem. There's other factors that show that God has already been preparing the way for David to establish as a throne initially or God to establish David's throne initially there in Hebron. The region was already positively predisposed to him. 
Remember, they were the ones who helped him hide out when he was running from Saul. And then when it became too dangerous, he took his family and his men down to the Philistine area. But, but the truth is, they're still positively predisposed to him. They, they have a positive affection for him. The next factor is that David had already endeared himself to the elders of the city. I'm not sure if you remember the story in 1 Samuel 27, but, but after the battle in which they defeated the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites who were living among the, the southern area of southern Judah, David went really by the authority of the Philistines to attack southern Judah. He, the Philistine king Achish was thinking that he's going to attack Judah. Instead, he attacks the enemies of Judah. And so they like him for that reason. And remember the, the result of that battle in 1 Samuel 30 was that David said, we're not going to keep all the spoils for themselves. What did they do with them? They did spread some of them out among their own people that were in the battle, but they also took some among the different elders of the towns in southern Judah and said, hey, these people have been helping us along the way and let's go back and make sure that they take part in the spoils just as well as we in addition to that, another factor that God, I think, was using in order to make this establishment of David's throne make sense is that Judah, maybe subtly, we might not have picked this up very clearly, but Judah was actually already a separate group from Israel. So Judah, southern, Israel, the northern part. We, we think of it later on um, as the, the capital of Judah being Jerusalem and then the capital of of Israel being Samaria. And, and so these two were already separated. Um, and, and so it would make sense for David not to come in and establish his throne over all the people of Israel, but to establish his throne over this place where he's already seen as a positive um, leader and, and uh, one who is leading on behalf of God. And we saw hints of that in 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 8, where when, they were, when Saul's army was counted, it counted the northern tribes and the southern tribes, which seems to be kind of weird unless you recognize that there's probably already some division that's been created um, even during the time of Saul. And then notice here in chapter 2, verse 2, that his wives are coming with him. And, and what you should notice about them is that these areas from which his wives uh, came were from the southern region of Judea, Judah, the Jezreelitess, um, Ahinoam, and then also um, Abigail, who was a Carmelite, who was also, her husband also was from, from that area and controlled a lot of southern Judah. So David goes to Hebron, the southern city in Judah, and he does it according to God's word. He asks God what to do. God tells him, go to the city. And he takes his whole family with him, showing that this is going to be a permanent thing. He doesn't have any ties with the Philistines. Notice who else comes with him in verse 3. And David brought up his men who were with him, each with his household, and they lived in the cities of Hebron. So David is bringing, you should think, that this is a huge caravan, right? All the U-Hauls are being packed up, all their belongings from, they're not going back to Ziklag. Now, God is going to use that city later as one of their established cities, one that they own. But, but, but they're bringing all of their belongings, showing, listen, we don't have any allegiance to the Philistines. 
It may look like that because we were there, but, but that was just for the purpose of hiding out and waiting for Saul's anger to subside, which wasn't going to happen, or for him to die, which did happen. So Saul brings all, or excuse me, David brings his family, all of his belongings, and all the men who were fighting with him and their families, and they head on this trip from Ziklag to Hebron. And what they're doing now here in southern Judah is they're setting down their roots. This is our home. Philistine territory was only a temporary place of safety. And the result of this strategic and I think God-ordained move is found in verse 4. Then the men of Judah came and there anointed David king over the house of Judah. So here God is setting up all of these important foundations for David to become king. And when he comes there, it makes total sense for them to establish him as their king. This is an amazing journey that David has been on because it, it, at roughly the age of 15, God had chosen him from among all of his brothers, his older brothers. God chose him and anointed him in 1 Samuel 16. And now at the age probably of 30, David is being installed as king of Judah. And he's going to reign as king over Judah for seven and a half years as we see in verse 12. And, um, and then he's going to, God's going to allow him to be king over all of Israel. We'll see that when we get to chapter 5. So, question number one, how will David's kingdom be established? And the answer is, through the sovereign will of God as he orchestrates the events of history. David's not setting up all the dominoes in place and then knocking them down so that it leads to this grand finale of David becoming the king. That's not what happens. God's the one who has, in the background, set up all the dominoes in place. So that when it's time for David to come to Hebron and be established as king, David can be established as king. It makes complete sense. God is orchestrating the events of history. And he's also even orchestrating the very steps of David, right? David asks of the Lord, probably through the priest Abiathar, who's still alive at this time, saying, listen, where should I go? Or should I go? And then where should I go? And he says, you know, on behalf of God, you need to go to Hebron. And so we can say it this way. The answer to the question is that God established the throne of David unilaterally. That's one-sided. It was all God through providential means. How is God going to establish the kingdom of David? By His own means. God's going to do it. God established David's throne. Now, it's true that God was behind the initial establishment of David's throne, but we have to admit that in comparison to all the, the people of Israel that exist at this time in history, this group of Judah is fairly small. In other words, David's kingdom is not that big. So the second question that we need to ask from the text is, well, let me put that up there for you first. Unilaterally, unilaterally through providential means. So God's setting up, orchestrating. I like that word, orchestrating. It's like a conductor who sets everything in place and makes sure all the notes are being played pro properly. But, it, but he's setting up all the pieces so that David's throne actually happens according to his way and his timing. second question we need to ask of the text is, how will David's kingdom be expanded? How will David's kingdom be expanded? So first we saw, how is it established? Well, it's through God. 
that he is orchestrating all the events through providential means in a one-sided kind of way. David wasn't forcing his way to the throne. God did it. But now, how is it going to expand? And now we might think, well, since God was the one who established David's throne, independent, unilaterally, of David, then David should just sit back and do nothing. And he should just expect God to do all the work of expanding the throne. But instead... Here in in this section, David rightly recognizes that while God has the power to do anything he wants unilaterally on his own, David recognized that God often works through means. God often works through people acting. And so David wisely, I think, takes all the information that he has about his situation and uses it to expand his kingdom. Here's the information that he has. God has anointed me as king. God has installed me as king in Hebron. God has promised that the king, that the kingdom of Israel would come to my family line, not Saul's. And so based on that information that David has, he now uses that to, to, um, to put that wisdom into practice. He uses that to help expand his kingdom. Now, David's not going to take all the credit for the expansion of his kingdom because the, the catalyst that God uses to expand his kingdom, we're going to see this Jabesh Gileadites, the catalyst that he uses was actually set up by God. God even set up that, we can say, that domino. David's going to be a part of that, but, but God was the one who established it. So what I'm not suggesting is, okay, God's the one who establishes the kingdom. Now David takes over. God, we don't need you anymore. Okay, and, and we'll see that when I get to the end of this section. But, but do you remember this event where the Jabesh Gileadites do an act of kindness for Saul? Look at it in the second part of verse 4. And they, the people of David's men, they told David, saying, It was the men of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul. And so now David wants to honor them. Do you remember that event? When the Jabesh Gileadites learned of Saul's death, they wanted to honor him. And they wanted to honor him because Saul, early on in his military and really uh, early on in his kingdom, had saved, protected, rescued the Jabesh Gileadites in 1 Samuel 11 from the Ammonites. Now, Jabesh Gilead is on the east side of the Jordan River and and they're pretty non-offensive type people. They're farmers. They're not interested in picking a fight. And yet here are these Ammonites trying to take over their land. And here comes Saul and Jonathan to come and help and, and to protect them. And they defeat the Ammonites. And the Jabesh Gileadites did not forget that. And so when they heard of Saul's death, the first thing that they did is figure out how can we honor this man who protected us. Similar to what David does, right? When he learns of Saul's death, he honors the man. He doesn't, you know, kick more dirt on the grave. And that's what Jabesh Gilead did at the end, I think, of of First um, Samuel. They, several of their men, traveled ten to twelve miles in the cloak of darkness through enemy territory in order to recover the body of Saul. And they brought it back to Jabesh and they burned the body there in order to keep it from being further disgraced so that 
You know, if it's stolen again from them, then it's going to be paraded around the city like Saul's head was and, and used as a way to mock not only the king of Israel and the people of Israel, but the God of Israel. And so they wanted to, to honor this body by giving him a proper burial. So they burn his body first and then bury the bones. And in verses 5-7, through seven, David acknowledges their bravery and sees it as an act of, of goodness. Verse 5, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed of the Lord because you have shown this kindness to Saul your Lord and have buried him. Now may the Lord show loving kindness and truth to you, and I also will show the goodness to you because you have done this thing. So here he commends them for their kindness and their bravery, going up against all odds to to go through the middle of the night in enemy territory to recover this body. And David promises to show kindness to them because of their care at the end of verse 6. And then verse 7, here's where David uses his wisdom to work to establish his kingdom. Now remember, at this point, David is only king over the southern region, not over Jabesh-Gilead. Not over any of the, what we call the Transjordian tribes, right? The ones that are across. Um, and, and, um, and, and certainly not up, up in Samaria in that region, Dan and, and those places. But now he's going to start to make a, a wise tactical move as a king to try to gain some more support than just the southern region of Judah, primarily there in Hebron. And so here's what he asks of them. In verse 7, he says, I want you to be brave once again. You were brave in going after the body of Saul, and now I want you to be brave once again. I'm going to ask you to do something for me. Verse 7, Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant. So you have been strong, you have been valiant. Would you do it again? And here's how. For Saul your Lord is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. This time the act of bravery will not come by recovering the remains of one of their leaders, but in submitting to the rule of David. And this is important because the status quo or the majority is going to, as we're going to see in the next section, the majority of people are going to go after Saul's family. They're going to stay with that mindset that Saul's family still has the throne. What David is saying is, listen, I know people around you are going to be doing that, but would you be brave once again and see the will of God in me being king and follow after my rule? Recognize that this comes from God. Notice why this is important at the end of verse 7. Because Saul, your Lord, is dead. So the Jabesh Gileadites, like the rest of Israel and Judah, were under the rule of Saul, but now that Saul's dead, they have to make a choice. Will they follow the path of ease and submit themselves to the rule of Saul's descendants, specifically Ishbosheth, or will they take a step of courage and to submit to the rule of God through his king, David? And you might not think like this is that big of a decision for them, but let's think of it in terms of number, in terms of numbers. According to 1 Samuel 15:4, there are about 200,000 military men in the region of Israel. 200,000 compared to, in the region of Judah, 10,000. So they're in the lower minority, like 5% of all the, the Jews 
that are living and and they have to make a choice. That is, Jabesh Gilead is part of the 200,000. Okay? And, and what David's asking them is to come along with us, the, the smaller portion of Israel. Go against the flow. Go against the majority position, which is follow after Ishbosheth. He's the king. Just keep the status quo. Saul was king. It makes sense that it would go to the next person in line. His son. How often are we in that same place where the majority is going in one direction and the minority is going in another direction and we know what the right thing is to do, but we're a little bit afraid to go with the minority. We're a little bit afraid to go with those who are right because there are fewer of them. We don't want to go against the flow, against the grain. We want to, we want to be in with the masses. So we're kind of unseen. We're, we're not afraid of conflict because we're not conflicting with, with the majority. And yet this is what David is asking Jabesh Gilead to do. Listen, I know this is not a popular decision. So I want you to do what your men did when they recovered Saul's body. Be strong and be valiant and make the right choice. And follow after God's king, which is me, David's saying, which is me, not Ishbosheth. God had already promised it to me that his throne, Saul's throne, would be taken from him and given to me. And this is the time. And so David, David's kingdom was established by God's unilateral sovereign working and directing. God set up all of the structure, the foundation, in order for David to be king. The second question that we've just looked at now is how will David's throne be expanded? And the answer is through cooperation. Or we could say complicity through cooperative means. Complicity just means that he's willing to go along with what God is saying. God's saying, listen, I'm going to be the one who expands your kingdom. And so now through, through means, David, you are going to accomplish this. You're going to expand your throne. So use wisdom. And reach out to some of these people that are in, in nearby tribes. In other words, David is complicit with the work of God and he's willing to obey Him even at the risk of rejection. So God is behind the establishment of the throne, but He's also behind the expansion of the throne even though He's working through means, not unilaterally like we saw before. David is used by God to bring peace with a territory that, that would have had kind of like a fence, um, figuratively, a fence between they, between them and, and David's people. You know, we, we, why would we come over to your side of the fence? And David's saying, you, you would because this is God's desire. This is God's will. So how will David's kingdom be Established, how will it be expanded? And then thirdly, how will David's kingdom be protected in verses 8 through 11? At the same time that David is seeking to establish himself in Judah and to expand his influence in the southern region, Saul's army commander is working to set up a kingdom of his own. Now you're going to find out that this Abner is, is quite the snake and he will do anything to get more power. And he's going to 
to, um, to bring about his own demise because of some of his ploys. But, but the point is, is that he wants the throne to stay with, with Saul's family. And the reason for that is because he already has influence there. Abner does, Saul's military commander. So if he can just remain in that position, then this will be great. If he, if he concedes that to David's throne, David, you're the ruler now, then he has to kind of work his way back up to that position of military commander. And so what Abner does is that he makes an attempt at making Ishbosheth king. Now, it's not a very strong attempt. Notice in verse 8, but Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. Mahanaim is a region that's in Gilead. It's, on, it's near Jabesh Gilead, really. So it's on the, the east of the Jordan River. And I say it's not very strong position because, because it's not really a military territory. That's not where all of the, the, the soldiers hang out. right? They hang out in the cities. And here we are in the farmland, and, and here's where Abner establishes Ishbosheth as king. This is kind of on the outskirts of God's promised land. In fact, it really wasn't even part of the conquest. Remember, the conquest started when they crossed over the Jordan River, right? And they, they came into Jericho. On the other side, they had already started, right? The two and a half tribes already started establishing themselves. And that's why Joshua said to them, listen, you can't just stay here. You're, I know you're, you already have your land, but you need to help us. And you need to stick with us all the way to the end. And by God's grace, they joined in the battle and stuck with them all the way to the end, even though they already had their territory on the east of the Jordan River. So this is kind of on the outskirts, and this is where Abner is trying to make his power play, which is not a very strong power play. It's more of a weak play. What you'll notice about Ishbosheth, Saul's son, in the next three chapters, is that while Abner is largely aggressive, an aggressive figure, Ishbosheth is a largely passive figure. And, um, and we'll see that as we study through the text. We might not think too much about this move by Abner. You know, maybe he was just innocently helping the son of a man who had been established as king by God, Saul. But chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 suggest that Abner knew exactly who God had promised to be the king. He knew that David was the man who was promised to be king. And in that way, he is actually taking from God what rightfully belongs to him. God, I will not accept who you have established as king, David, because it doesn't fit into my plans. I'm going to make my man the king, Ishbosheth, which really, Ishbosheth, Ish, Ishbosheth was really a pawn in, Abner, in Abner's hand. So in reality, this power play was an act of defiance toward God and towards God's king, David just like the nations of the world have done throughout history, right? The nations of the world, remember Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? Why do the kings plot in vain? They don't want God to be their king. They don't want God as their king. They want to be their own rulers. So they establish all these various kings who will give them what they want and, and lead them in the way that they want. And this is what Abner's doing here. This act of Abner will be a form of opposition to David's throne. And so this conflict that we've seen between Saul's house, Saul's family, and David's family that we saw throughout the second part of 1 Samuel really continues with 
Abner trying to do this. And Saul's house and David's house are now still warring with one another. And despite Abner's bold act, Ishbosheth is only king for two years. And you'll have to wait until chapter 4 to see what happens to him, why his kingdom only lasts for two years. But in contrast to the house of Saul, the house of David is going to be established in the region of Judah for seven and a half years. It seems what's happening here in verse 11 is that while Ishbosheth is only going for two years, David is going for seven and a half years. So how does that work? Are they starting at the same time? Ishbosheth's kingdom ends at two years and then David's goes all the way to seven and a half? Or is it the other way around where, where David starts his throne or his kingdom? for five and a half years and then Ishbosheth starts his throne and then they are kind of running concurrent thrones until Ishbosheth ends and David takes over Israel. It seems to me it's that second option um, because it seems as we get to the text later on that David takes over immediately and, uh, and so it's probably that Abner's working to build up this rapport with the people and he finally gets Ishbosheth established even though David's established right away. Ishbosheth's established at the end of David's rule over Judah. So how will David's kingdom be protected? And really um, the it's not fully answered here, but we'll see it in the rest of Second Samuel, and that is that it will God will protect his throne sovereignly through oppositional means. That is, as people come to oppose David, they will serve into God's hands. They will play into God's hands to accomplish his purposes for expanding David's throne. In fact, Saul's own commander, Abner, is going to betray Saul's son, as we'll see. And and if you think the Bible is boring, come back next time because chapters 2 and 3 are just unbelievable. I mean, they would make a Hollywood motion picture. Uh, the, the type of intrigue and, and betrayal and, and murder and all sorts of things that are going on. Um, and, and so you'll want to look at those two chapters before we come together next time. But I would encourage you to be here for that. All right, one, one point of application. Well, let me just give you the theme. I, I've kind of held out on that purposely to... Um, in order to show you that, that really God is behind it all. That's what we see in this text. In this text, that the kingdoms of this world are established by God. Now we might be thinking only the good kingdoms are established by God, but really all kingdoms of this world are established by God. That's what Romans 13 tells us. That no ruler has his authority except what has been granted by God. And they minister on behalf of God in some way. Now we might not like the way they, they minister or serve but, but, but they serve God's purposes. And as we studied through Romans 13, I, I understand from that text that all rulers are God's rulers. Now, that doesn't mean that they're all good and they all do good things all the time. But what it does mean is that God sovereignly rules over every single ruler so that in Proverbs 22.1, we can read that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it whatever way he wishes like a river of water. So that even people like Pharaoh or Pilate who do awful and terrible things and do the most terrible acts that have ever been done to humanity, the death of our Savior, are all established by God. God was not surprised when any of those leaders came to power. And, and so while we're looking 
specifically at the kingdom of David, it's also true that all the kingdoms of this world are established by God. God is behind it all. He unilaterally, one-sided, he, he on his own works to set up the kingdom through a series of events that leads to David's initial rule in Judah. And then God works through ordinary means of David. David, in other words, com- is complicit with God to, to expand the kingdom. And then God also is working. He doesn't just establish the, ro- the throne and then expand it, but He also works alongside of David to help protect the throne, doesn't He? So that the throne will not be overthrown and overpowered by men who want to establish their own king. God is going to preserve it as He wants to so that in His timing, His leader can rule in His way. Over the last several weeks, we've been seeing that David needs to follow God's purposes and to wait on God's timing. And and certainly, we can see that same idea here in this passage since David waits on the Lord in verses 1-4. through But this evening, what I want to do as we close with one principle is to consider how this all works from the perspective of God. And that is, that God is trustworthy. We've kind of been looking at it from David's perspective that, that he needs to be complicit with God's way and God's timing. But what I want to just consider as we close here is from God's perspective, that God is trustworthy and what that means for us. God is the one who establishes His people in their positions of power. Now, we might think, well, maybe that's only for rulers, right? Maybe that's only for kings. But but. Can't we take by implication that God establishes every position, no matter how big or small it is, that God is the one who is behind it all? God promised to David that he would be king, and God followed through on his promise. Sure, it didn't happen in David's timing, that maybe the timing that David wanted. It took 15 years, and I can't imagine how terrifying and anxious those years must have been for him running from Saul. And sure, when David was initially established as, established as king, it wasn't very large. And so David is still going to have to wait on the Lord and he's still going to have some resistance to his leadership. But the reality that David needed to know and what we need to know is that God is trustworthy. God is faithful to His promises. And the idea of God being trustworthy simply means that God can be trusted. Because he will not go back on his promises. And while God's purposes in our lives may not happen in the timing that we desire and according to how we imagined that they would happen, when God promises something, it will come to pass. Now, now when we think of God's promises, we think, God promised it, where is it? God promised it, it's not here. And so then our minds start to go to, well, maybe there's a disconnect here. Maybe God is not faithful to His promises. But what we should consider is that God has promised many things that people have had to wait for decades and centuries and millennia to receive. Consider Abraham and Sarah who had to wait 25 years between the promise of a son and the birth of a son. Consider the nation of Israel who had to wait 2,000 years between the promise of the Messiah and the birth of the Messiah. 
Consider the church of Jesus Christ who has been waiting for 2,000 years since the promise of Christ's kingdom until today. And we don't know how much longer it's going to be before Christ's kingdom is established. Right? We're still waiting. We don't know when He will return. We don't know how our present circumstances are contributing to the fulfillment of God's promise. But here's what we know. God promised that Christ is coming and God is trustworthy. Our Savior will come in great power and glory. And He will reign as King over this world on David's throne. This world has been hijacked by the God, small g, of this world. But only for a time. Because Christ's kingdom is coming. And we await that day. And we anticipate that God will follow through on His promise. And while God will do much of His work in establishing the throne of Jesus unilaterally, right, on His own, kind of how He established David's throne, He also employs us in 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 doing the work that's going to bring about Christ's rule that leads up to the rule of Christ's kingdom. Right? Think of the parable of of I can't remember what we call it, but basically where the um, the bridegroom says, "Listen, go out and and make sure all of the invited guests come in." And he said, "Well, I already did that. that that's it. That, there's no more." He says, "Well, then you need to go out into the highways." And, and, and go out into the, the farthest reaches of the earth and make sure that they know and invite them too. And that's part of what we're doing, getting ready for this great feast when the Lord reigns as King and we as His bride. I think I can think of two specific ways that, that God expects us to be complicit with Him in the bringing about of Christ's kingdom. First, prayer. Remember at the end of Revelation... What John prays after he sees all these unbelievable, unbelievable is not a word because it is believable, okay, but, but amazing visions. As he sees all of these, he prays at the end and says, the very last verse of the Bible, even so, come, Lord Jesus. He's praying for something that's already going to happen, and yet God uses means to bring about that establishment of Christ's rule. And then the second way, I think that we can be complicit with God in the bringing about of Christ's kingdom is to, is to spread the news, as I just mentioned. Go out in the highways and the byways and, and let everybody know. Our job is to get the message out. God's job is to save them. Right? Our job is to be the herald. God's job is to regenerate them, to bring their lives, their, bring their, those who are spiritually dead to spiritual life. We can't do that. We can't revive a spiritually dead person. God can. And He does it through people like you and me who go out and tell them. So there's two ways that we can be complicit with the establishment of God's kingdom through Christ. Prayer and the ministry of the Word through evangelism. Alright. So God can be trusted. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the example of David. Thank You for um, the clarity that You have in Your Word shows how You are working behind the scenes. Lord, we, we often don't see what You're doing and don't understand Your ways, but, but sometimes Your Word unveils
for us, removes the scales from our eyes so that we can see the glory of your gospel and that you are sovereignly working behind the scenes to accomplish your purposes, to establish rulers, to bring about your purposes through us and sometimes even independent of us. And so we pray that you'd continue to do that. Send our Savior quickly, Lord. Bring about the final judgment and the final vindication of those who love you. Until that time, help us to be faithful to reach more. We, we hate to see people lost and, and dying and going to hell and, and to receive the eternal wrath of God. We want to see them experience the same kind of grace that we have received and are receiving day after day. So give us the strength to, to reach out in the meantime to be those heralds of the gospel. And we pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.